Our sermon today is taken from Job chapter 42, verses 1 to 17. This is the word of God. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourself. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz and the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the, and the name of the second Kesha, and the name of the third Karen Hapuch. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Thus says the Lord. Let me pray for us before we start in our sermon. Father, we come to you and we pray as we end and close this book of Job that you would show us what it is you mean from this book and that you would conclude and answer all the questions that were posed throughout the book and by doing so, allow us to see you, um, the transcendent, powerful, sovereign, almighty God who is able to do all things. And I pray that as we do so, we may, like Job here, finally find comfort in our sufferings and serve you even in difficult times. We beg you, Father, for this mercy. And above all, we pray that you would show us Jesus. And in his name alone we pray. Amen. So, friends, we're finally at the end of the book of Job, and here, in the last chapter, we see the conclusion of the story. All the questions that were asked throughout the book are finally answered. And now, if you haven't been with us for, uh, throughout this Job series, the story is about a good, moral, religious man whom God took everything away from. He lost his possessions, his business, his health, his children. And that's how the first two chapters of the, the book of Job started. And the rest of the book is really just Job with his three friends trying to make sense of, of what happened. Right? His three friends are saying, well, this is what happened. The reason why you're suffering and God took all this away from you is because God must be punishing you uh, for your sins. And, and Job is saying, I, I don't think so. I'm innocent. 
I don't think I've done anything to deserve this particular thing that's happening to me. And, and throughout the conversation, which is throughout the whole book, a lot of questions start to arise for the readers. Questions concerning mainly God's justice. How can God justly destroy Job's life when Job hasn't really done anything wrong? And alongside the actual calamity that Job experienced, this, this question, how can God do this when I haven't done anything wrong? This question, it, that's what I think really robbed Job from joy, happiness, and, and comfort. He couldn't rest. What have I done? Job asks. Why is God doing this to me? And, and throughout the book, he's looking for an answer that would comfort him. That, that's actually one of the ongoing themes you see in the book of Job, that throughout the book, from chapter 3 to chapter 41, Job has been thirsting and longing, trying to grasp for comfort, comfort that continues to elude him. He, he just couldn't find it. And let, let me just explain the Hebrew word for comfort that's used throughout the book because it's, it's going to be helpful as we study this last passage. For example, in Job chapter 7, verse 13, Job said that he can't even, he can't even take comfort in his own bed. He can't take nacham, comfort in, in Hebrew, in his own bed. You ever had something happen to you so bad you can't even sleep? That's what Job is going through. Chapter 16, verse 2, Job called his friends miserable nacham, miserable comforters. Not, not one of his friends was able to give him the relief that he needed. And chapter 21, verse 34, again, Job said his friends failed to nacham him, to comfort him. So, so this is a theme. This is a question throughout the book of Job. How will Job find comfort? How will he find nacham? How, how can anyone who's suffering find comfort? Right? That's a huge theme, huge question throughout the book. And now, in our last passage, this word nakam or this word comfort, occurs again two times. But no longer in the context of Job trying to look for it, but in the context of Job having found it. Okay, so this is what's resolved in this last chapter, is the question how? Where does Job find comfort from an event this bad? Well, there's three ways. I want to point out, one, God vindicated Job's past, two, God restored Job's honor, and three, God fulfilled Job's holistic needs. Job found comfort because God vindicated Job's past, God restored Job's honor, and God fulfilled Job's holistic human needs, okay? And um, we'll we'll, we'll get to it. Let's go to our first point. God vindicated Job's past. Look look at first verse one in our passage. Let's start at the beginning. It starts off there by saying, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Job answered the Lord and said that that implies that God, the Lord, said something to Job before this chapter in which Job is responding to, right? And if you want to make sense of this chapter, we got to know what God said in that, that Job is responding to. So let's rewind a few chapters. And if you do, you'll see in chapter 38 to 41 that God answered Job and told Job the reason as to why he let him suffer. But it's not as clear and direct as that. We have to kind of parse it a little bit. So you see Job's three friends uh, throughout the book, right, told Job this. The answer as to why God made you suffer like this is because you sinned, right? If God made you suffer, Job, that must have been because you sinned in the past. You made some kind of mistake in the past, and God is punishing you for that mistake. That's how God is justified in causing the suffering upon your life. But Job disagreed and said, no, I don't think so. I'm, I'm innocent. 
I mean, I never did anything in the past to particularly deserve all of this. And, and Job is right. The book itself tells us that Job is a righteous man. He's innocent. So there's this confusion. And finally, God answered them in chapter 38 to 41. And, and in his answer, God says something really interesting in chapter 48, 41, verse 8 which I think is the key to God's answer, as if to how God can justly do this to Job when he's innocent. God said this, Job, will you condemn me that you may be right? Will you condemn me that you may be right? In other words, God is asking Job here, why does it have to be an either or? Why is it either you're right or I'm right? Why is it either you're innocent and I shouldn't have made you suffer or you're guilty and I'm right in making you suffer. Why? Why are those the only two options? God's asking Job here, have you considered that I'm bigger than that? Have you ever considered that there could be a way to where I can be justified in making even an innocent man suffer? And, and the reader at this point is probably going, uh, no. <laughs> That's impossible. How can a judge justify punishing someone who's innocent? That you can't you can't justify that. And see, there's the problem. Job, his friends, and I think many of the readers are putting God in a box. As if he's a giant human judge up there in the sky who can only be justified in making someone suffer if that person made mistakes in the past. What if God is bigger than that. What if there's another way of justifying this that we haven't thought about? What if God can justify his act of making someone suffer, not because he's making them pay for a past mistake, but because he's preparing them for a superior joy in the future that can only be experienced if that person first went through suffering? What if that's God's reasoning? I'll explain later in a, in a little bit, but... You guys remember the story in uh, Luke 15 about the prodigal son, right? Stories about a son who lived with his father in his house and he ran away and he lived a terrible life and the father was miserable because the son left and the son was miserable and eventually the son returned. You remember what happened at the end of the story when the son was found again? Remember what the whole house did, what the father did? They exploded into joyous celebration. They threw a banquet. They, they partied. That's a great story, but here's the thing, and you can't miss this. This, this celebration, this explosive joy, this, this joyous banquet at the end of the story, it would have never happened unless the story first took an awful turn. Think about it. This kind of elated joy and happiness would have never happened unless the son was found. And the son would have never been found unless he was first lost. What if there's a superior kind of joy that can only be experienced through redemption? And redemption can only be experienced if there was a situation that needed redeeming in the first place. By the way, the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, that's the last part of a trilogy that Jesus was telling at the time. The first two stories connected to this one before the story of the lost prodigal son is a story about two other lost things that were found, lost sheep and a lost coin. You remember that? Now guess what happened at the end of the story of the lost sheep? The shepherd, you know, looked for the sheep, found the sheep that was lost, and then what did he say? The shepherd said, rejoice with me, 
for I have found my sheep that was lost. You see, again, the shepherd experienced a kind of joy he would have never experienced unless the sheep was lost in the first place. And guess what happened after the lost coin story? The woman that was looking for it said, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Again, experiencing a kind of joy she would have never experienced unless the coin was lost in the first place. What if there exists a superior kind of joy that you can only experience through redemption. Job and his friends demanded God, justify your actions, you know, and they, they did it by looking at Job's past mistakes. And God justified his actions by pointing to his future plan. That's why God answered in chapter 38 to 41, God kept revealing to Job just how big he was, what he's capable of doing. You know, don't, don't equate me to a limited human judge. Have you forgotten? God said in those chapters that I laid down the foundations of the earth. I ordered the stars. I made the whole universe out of nothing. Have you forgotten? I've seen the gates of Hades at journey's end. <laughs> I know how this whole thing ends because I wrote it. Have you forgotten? I can, I can play around with time easier than you can fast forward or rewind a YouTube video. I control the thunder, he says. I control the wild beasts. It's not either or, you see. Yes, you're innocent. But I'm also justified in my actions because I purpose to bring about a kind of joy in your life that you would have never experienced unless you went through this first. It's both and. Now, the question that we have, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is the redemption at the end going to be worth it? And, you know, Paul thought it was. You look at Romans chapter 8, he said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's a con con direct connection in Paul's theology between our current suffering and the glories that will be revealed to us. Why, why must I be wrong for you to be right? Am I not bigger than that, Job? Could I not have purposed this for something greater? You are innocent, and I still did this to you, not to punish you for a past sin, but to bring about a greater glory in the future. Paul saw it was worth it, and Job, finally, in the last chapter of this book, saw it too. Look at verse 5. Look at how Job responds to God. He finally sees it. I'd heard you, I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now, now, my eye sees you. That's what he said. He finally gets it. He gets that he's been putting God in a box this whole time. And here's the thing. Only after Job saw this, only after he saw how big God was, this, this is what he said in verse 6. I despise myself or I humble myself and repent in dust and ashes. And you know what the Hebrew word for repent here is? It's nacham. It's the same Hebrew word throughout the book translated as comfort. Finally, once Job repented from putting God in a box, seeing how big he was and all the things he can do, finally, finally he found Naham. He found the comfort he was looking for throughout the whole book. This is really important. You can't miss this. Notice, when did Job found, 
Or when did Job find this nakam? When did he find this comfort? Was it before or after God restored his fortunes? It was before. When did Job find this comfort? In verse 6. And now look at our passage. When did God restore back Job's fortunes? Verse 10. Job found comfort before God restored his fortunes. Job found comfort when he was still in the dust, when he still had nothing, before his disease was healed, before his business was restored, before his savings were replenished, before his good name was repaired. You know what this means? This means the secret to having comfort in suffering is not having more stuff. It's having a bigger view of God. How did God give Job comfort? Not by giving him stuff, by expanding his theology, by increasing his knowledge of God, by telling him all that God is able to do and how big he was and how much Job put him in a box. If any of us ever think that theology is impractical, impractical I would say, ask Job. He'll tell you. From it, you can find true comfort in life's darkest night. It's his theology that did that. Okay. Now, was that it? Was that all God did to comfort Job? Just expanded his view of, of God, just taught him more theology, just you know, revealed God's redemptive abilities and, and how he purposes at the end for the good? No. God did more than that. We see as we move on in the passage that God continued to comfort Job, not just by vindicating his past, not just by telling him it's, not, it's nothing he did wrong. That's not why he's doing this. God's doing this for another reason. What could it be? Well, the only other reason is to give him greater uh, glory in the end. Okay? That, that's not all he did, but God also comforted Job by restoring his honor. Which leads us to our second point, our second section of the passage. Now, remember, Job's friends throughout the whole story, you know, they're sitting there and judging Job, right? They they're wrongly accuse Job for being guilty. God did this because you've sinned. God did this because you did something wrong. And now, finally, in the last chapter, the tables are turned. How? Well, first, God rebuked Job's friends. Look at verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So, rebukes them. But on top of that, God humbled them even further by saying, look, if you want to be forgiven from your mistakes, you got to ask for Job to pray for you. Verse 8, now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. You see that the person they wrongly accused is now the person they're dependent upon for forgiveness. You see how satisfying this must have been for Job? That feeling of, of, of vindication, right? Imagine God going to every single person who's ever wrongly thought the worst of you and tell them, I need you to beg, uh, beg them for, you need to, they need to beg you for forgiveness. <laughs> this is vindication, it's satisfying, right? God, God comforted Job by restoring his honor. And remember, God didn't just restore Job's honor before his three friends. God restored Job's honor before Satan himself, right? Satan accused Job. Remember that in chapter 2? Satan told God, 
Job's just serving you because he's getting stuff from you. Job's just serving you because you're blessing him with material things. Job's really just serving himself. He's in it for himself, right? Satan was accusing Job wrongly like the three friends. Everyone in the story was accusing Job. Satan, his friends, you can maybe say even his wife was kind of against him, right? Everybody in the story accused Job except for God. God defended him. And it's clear he does that in this passage. Look at how many times God said the phrase in this passage, my servant Job, my servant Job, my servant Job. Look, verse 7, God says, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Verse 8, now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job. Verse 9, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. What's the point of this? Why is he, God being so repetitive to say this is my servant Job? Is to restore his honor. It's to defend him against all the accusations that said he's failed as a servant of God. He's saying, look, Eliphaz, and you two other guys, my servant Job is innocent. Go ask him to pray for you. He's, he restored Job's honor. And look at what Job did here. He obeyed God. Job obeyed God, served God, forgave his friends, you know, prayed for his friends. Job did everything God asked him to do. Again, this is important. When did Job do this? Before or after God restored his fortunes? Before. <laughs> Remember, God didn't restore Job's fortunes until verse 10. But yet Job obeyed God and prayed for his friends. Where? In verse 9. Thus, also proving Satan wrong. You see? S remember what Satan said. Satan said, you know, Job won't obey you, God. Job won't obey you if you took everything away he had, and he's only obeying you because you're giving him stuff. And God is saying, I did. I took everything away from him, and I haven't given anything back yet. But yet, while still sick, while still broke, while still careerless, while still childless, Job served me, God is saying. Thus, restoring Job's honor and his name, defending him from all accusations, from this world, and from hell itself. And it's connected, I think. Job's growth in his view of God in verses 1 to 6 and how God is going to mean this suffering eventually for a redemptive good and Job's purity of service to God in verses 7 to 9. I, th I think it's connected because it'd be hard to think that Job would have this kind of ability to serve and obey God uh, in, in, in verses 7 to 9 unless he first found the comfort that he did in God's redemption plan in verses 1 to 6. And it's interesting, you know, when you think about the book in the Bible that most that talks most about God's redemptive plan, his climactic redemption, right? What's the book you think about? Well, it's probably the book of Revelation, where it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, talks about God triumphing over evil. And, and we study the book of Revelation with all its details and all the systematic theology, which is good. We should do that, right? Study, who, who does the Bible mean by this antichrist? That's, that's weird. You know, what are the horses? Who, who are they? What's that? Look at, you know, what are the eschatological implications in, in the book of Revelation? The thousand years, what does that mean? Is it literally a thousand years? You know, study all that. That's all good and well. But I think we often forget something really important. In what context did John write the book of Revelation? It was in the context of encouraging a persecuted and suffering church. 
What did a persecuted and suffering beat-down church need in order to continue to serve God? They needed to see the same thing Job saw here. They needed to see God's redemptive end. They needed to be encouraged that at the end, God will make all things right, and you want to be able to serve God in the midst of your suffering and not slump around, you know, you got to see, you got to see God's redemptive end. A preacher once shared a story about two men, uh, both served in hard labor, right, locked up in a dark dungeon for 10 years, and neither of them can leave. And the first man, right before he was thrown into the dungeon, he gets this news that his wife just died and his children just died and that nothing good, nothing glorious awaits for him after these 10 years. And the second man, right before he was thrown into the dungeon, he, he got news that his wife actually just gave birth to a healthy child. And they both just can't wait to greet him and see him and celebrate him once he's out of the dungeon. And, you know, story goes, the first man, of course, right? With no anticipation of anything at the end of this hard labor, he slowly just kind of withers away. He just kind of slumped his feet around the dungeon. But the second man, you know, he... He had a cheer about him. He had a bit more bounce in his step. And though some days are harder than others, there was this energy about him that was not found in the first man. Why? What's different? The situation's the same. They're both in the same dungeon, doing the same hard labor. The difference is that man number two, he has something glorious to look forward to. What kept Paul going in the midst of all his starvation and shipwrecks and persecution and, and stoning why did he have the energy why was there still bounce to his step because he knew that the future glory revealed to him would be nothing compared to the suffering he's experiencing now you know where he wrote most of his new testament letters from from house prison from quarantine <laughs> you see same situation totally different lives only someone who understands that their current suffering is a part of God's plan to prepare them for an explosive redemption later. Only they will be able to spend less time defending their own honor from others and more time praying for them. How are we serving others in this time of quarantine? All right, let's move on in our passage. So, what do we see so far? God comforted Job here first by vindicating his past, second by restoring his honor. And lastly, finally, God comforted Job by fulfilling his needs completely, holistically, which is our last point. God fulfilled Job's holistic needs. So here's a danger that I, I hope we don't fall into, and I think many Christians do fall into this. We, we often over-spiritualize things. What do I mean? We think that when God's redemption plan unfolds at the end, we, we think of heaven, you know, as this non-material spiritual realm. You know, we're all just kind of Casper in, in the sky, floating around, right? But if you read the Bible, the future redemptive plan that God has clearly includes more than just the redemption of our spiritual relationship with God, but also redemption of our physical tangible, material things. You know, read the book of Genesis. God didn't just create you as a spiritual being. God created your body as well, and he means to redeem everything that's his. How is heaven described in the Bible in Revelation chapter 19? John describes it as the new heavens and the new earth. 
right? First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that in heaven, we're going to have new bodies, physical, tangible, material bodies. When, when Jesus resurrected, which is a preview of our redemption, he wasn't just spirit. He had an actual physical body, right? He ate fish. Thomas stuck his finger in Jesus' wound. See, this is the picture of, of God's redemption in heaven. We're not hollow spirits floating around. No, we have physical bodies. You know, there will be people of all tribes, tongues, and nations, meaning there's some kind of identification of, of how we can tell which person is which from ethnicity and, and race, but yet without prejudice. Imagine that. We'll eat in heaven, right? There'll be a feast, it says. As, as one author described it in heaven, we won't be floating around in hollow bodies passing by one another. We'll be hugging What we see at the end of the book of Job here is that God redeemed Job not just in his spiritual needs, but also in his material needs, his relational needs, everything holistically. Look at verse 10. Let's continue in our passage. God finally restored Job's fortunes. That's, that's material stuff. And then in verse 11, what did God do? God sent him a community. Verse 11, then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him. Sympathy and comfort. It's interesting, if you remember when Job's three friends first visited him in, in chapter two, what they attempted to do to Job is that they came to show Job sympathy and comfort, it says, but yet they failed. And God here gave Job a true community. In heaven, you'll have the family you've always longed for, but never had. And then look at verse 12 for our passage. God restored Job's what? Sheep, camels, oxen, donkeys. In other words, more material, tangible, touchable things. They're restored. And in verse 13, God restored Job's children. And look, this passage isn't trying to make a psychological claim, right? Uh, like, you know, the Bible is saying that if we have new kids in the future, that's going to soothe us from or replace the sadness that we experience from a death from our previous child. No, no, no. The Bible is not making any kind of claims like that. That would be very insensitive to make. The way this part of the story is written is obviously not meant to be used as data to, to kind of come up with any kind of psychological or scientific report from. Okay, look at the number of camels and donkeys uh, that Job had. If you look at it compared to the, uh, the, the first chapter, you'll see that the number is exactly doubled. Okay, now of course, that's not an exact report, right? Because surely at some point, some died and some were born and at different times he'd have different you know, donkeys, amount of donkeys, right? So it's not, it's not meant to be read like a police report like that. And, you know, he had, verse 13 said he had 10 children. His 10 children just kind of appeared in verse 13. Obviously, Job's wife didn't give birth to 10 babies at once, right? That's not how you're meant to read it. It's not meant to be read like a scientific report, you know, and to come up with funny conclusions with. The point here is that whatever redemption takes place, it will be holistic, it will meet all of our needs, spiritual, yes, but also communal, physical, social, material. And whatever redemption takes place at the end, it'll double, right? It'll increase your joy, it's saying here, in such a way that you would have never experienced unless God first allowed you to go through this valley low in the first place. That's what this book is trying to claim. The book of Job is making a promise that one day you'll see things will be much more beautiful having once been broken. 
compare it to if it was never broken in the first place. That's the conclusion. That's what Book of Job is about. Okay, so let's summarize. You want to find comfort now. You don't find comfort currently in the time of your suffering and quarantine through sickness, through financial anxieties. You want to find comfort here. Then you must know beyond a shadow of doubt, like Job did, that God is not doing this, is not causing you to suffer, to punish you from your past mistakes. You have to know that beyond a shadow of doubt, but that he's instead doing it to prepare you for a greater future redemption in which then you will see that things are much more beautiful having once been broken compared to if it was never broken in the first place. That's it. That's where Job found comfort. And unless you truly believe that, unless you can truly say that, there will always be a cap on how well you can handle suffering. You'll never be able to serve God and love others well during your times of suffering, like, like Job did, like Paul did. That's it. That's the book of Job. All the questions posed throughout the book about Job's innocence, about God's justice and redemption plan, about why God let an innocent man suffer, all answered here in this last chapter. However, I have a feeling that we, the readers, we still have one unanswered question, a big one. At this point, if you're anything like me, you're probably saying this. Well, I'm glad Job can believe and say without a shadow of doubt that he did nothing wrong to deserve the suffering, and I'm happy that God himself affirmed Job's innocence at the end, that God isn't doing this to punish Job from any of his past mistakes, that he's an innocent and righteous man. But see, I'm not quite sure if God would say that about me. <laughs> Actually, I'm pretty sure he won't. Because if you look at my past, I've made plenty of mistakes. If that's the case, how then can I ever get to the point to find comfort in believing beyond a shadow of doubt that my suffering isn't meant to be punishment from past mistakes? How can I say that with a straight face when I've made plenty of mistakes? I'm not innocent Job. And the answer is, friends, is that you're not meant to see yourself in Job, who is innocent in himself. You're meant to see yourself in Job's three friends here in this story, who were made innocent through forgiveness. What do I mean? See, Job was wrongly accused by his friends. He was wrongly proclaimed as a criminal who sinned against God. But yet Job, the innocent sufferer, at the end of the story, asked that God would forgive his friends for their sins, for their mistakes. How? Through prayer and a burnt offering. And now because of that prayer and burnt offering, the Lord then proclaimed Job's three guilty friends as innocent and did not deal with them according to their mistakes, verse 8 says. Christian, I know you've made plenty of mistakes. I know I have. But were you not also made innocent by someone's prayer? Have you not been made innocent by a burnt offering? Whose? Did Jesus not on that cross pray? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Did not Jesus on that cross offer up a burnt offering himself to die for your sins, 
so that God would not deal with you according to your mistakes? How can you be sure with bold confidence, without a doubt, that you are innocent and that God is not letting you suffer this pain because of any of your past mistakes, but instead to prepare you for an explosive, redemptive joy in the future. How can you have that kind of confidence? Because on that cross, Jesus Christ prayed for you, and he died for you, and he interceded for you like Job did with his friends, and he took all of your guilt upon himself so that you may be declared innocent. When God told Job's friends to kill the burnt offering for their sins, he was foreshadowing himself. He's the burnt offering who will one day pay for our sins. I've seen how the story ends, God told Job. The innocent son of God suffered on that cross and paid for your sins so that you and I can say with confidence beyond a shadow of doubt, that whatever calamity God sends my way now, he means it not as punishment for my past mistakes, but as preparation for a greater future redemption. And even if Satan himself tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Do you see him now? Do you see how big your God is? He justified himself. How can you love sinners like them, Satan asks? How can you love them after all they've done? How can you prepare them for the coming joys of redemption? Justify yourself, God. How is this fair? It's fair, God says, because I'm paying. You can take comfort in the midst of your sorrows and await the coming joy because Christ laid down his heavenly joys as he took upon your sorrows. You're innocent now. I pray you see. I pray the Spirit takes whatever words can't do and cause your heart to see just how big your God is. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Amen. Father, I pray that those who have heard you from the hearing of the ear will now vividly see you with eyes that truly see that they would look upon Calvary and find comfort there, that they are now innocent. And because of that, they can boldly say with a straight face, without wavering, that whatever, whatever calamity and suffering God sends in my way now, he does not mean to punish me because all of my punishments has been taken on that cross. And he means it now 
to show off his love and his power and just how big he is by redeeming a sinner like me. I pray you help those who do not know you come to know you as this book is preached. And I pray that your redemptive story will be made clear and that the hero of it, Christ, will be displayed vividly throughout. We beg you, Father, that the prayer we asked in the beginning of the sermon, that you would show us Jesus, you would answer. Give us grace, give us mercy, give us comfort as we ponder upon how, how big you are and how low you're willing to go to seek us out for your glory, for our good. Let us rejoice in whatever sufferings come our way because we know you do not mean it to punish us, but you mean it for our good. In Jesus' name and in his name alone we pray. Amen.